welcome, welcome, welcome. This is Apollo Gift Center. This is Arthur Asadurian. I hope you are having a good day or night or morning or if you're in the future. Uh, I, I don't know what to say, but hopefully you're having a good future. Uh, maybe a brighter one than uh, the one we're having today um, here and now in 2021. Um, I have an amazing guest with me today and I'm just going to bring him in and then uh, we'll go on with our introductions. Uh, many of you guys know uh, Dr. Paul Copan and uh, the various works he's done and the ministry he does and the encouragement he is to the Christian world and to up-and-coming apologists. Um, it's, it's very uh, humbling to have him on and thank you for agreeing uh, to come on our podcast. Glad to be with you, Arthur. Thank you very much. No problem. Uh, so let's introduce you, and then our our time is uh, of value. Uh, again, uh, I usually introduce the educational background of uh, my guests, so we'll go through with that, because I always find it interesting as to the work that's been done before the PhD stuff, because I think that that matters a great deal and that impact. And yours is one of those uh, cases, because it really involves and uh, works with the kind of work that you do. Uh, so Columbia International University, BA in Biblical Studies, uh, Trinity International, MA in Philosophy, Trinity, Trinity International University, an MDiv, that one I didn't know about, uh, oh. that you have an MDiv, and a PhD from Marquette University in Philosophy with emphasis on the philosophy of religion. What were... Um, those experiences like as people as some people might be watching this and considering uh, you know whether starting in their educational journey or trying to get an MA or an MDiv or a PhD tell us some practical advice well I want to say first that it was very good for me to have a background in both biblical studies and theology uh, and bringing that together with philosophy, uh, it's been very, it's just been invaluable to, uh, to bring those disciplines together and to engage in, in various ways and be able to step into one or the other uh, fairly readily. I, in terms of going forward, I mean, I did my PhD with a, you know, my wife and I, we had four children at the time. So we embarked on a PhD program after I'd worked on staff at the church for six and a half years. And so in our fifth, uh, our youngest one was born in Wisconsin, uh, where I was getting my PhD. So we, uh, yeah, so it was a challenge. It required both of us, my wife and I, being very much committed to the PhD, that it was not something that was just my idea. In fact, she was the one who suggested it. Uh, so the fact that we were both on board fully and we worked hard to uh, to get through the program expeditiously, uh, so it was it was a very uh, great a grand adventure. We loved uh, doing that, but uh, but again, it just required uh, tenacity and uh, and a spirit of adventure too. Hmm. And uh, and so we uh, so those are a couple of things that uh, I would say. Uh, you know, to give a little bit of a background to that. I don't know if you want me to add a little more, but that those are just a few uh, bullet points uh, that uh, in response. Um, now, I was at a conference and you said something that um, uh, shocked me. I guess I, did, I didn't know about it, but uh, tell us about your ethnic background. I think a lot, a lot of people don't know that and how that kind of impacts the way you do ministry and apologetics. Yeah, my father was born in the Ukraine. His grandfather died as a result of the uh, Stalin-induced uh, uh, famine, uh, the Holodomor. And the uh, uh, my mother uh, was from uh, Latvia, Riga, Latvia. They met in the uh, in in Germany. Uh, they fled from their home countries, uh, and so. So anyway, my, my, they have that, uh, that, that there's that ethnic background and they were, uh, someone my father had met, um, was a, uh, John Mark, uh, uh, was actually an Armenian who officiated at their wedding. Uh, so he was a great mentor to my dad and a pastor and ended up moving to uh, your area, Pasadena, uh, where a lot of our, there's a large Armenian population there, but, uh, he had, he himself had experienced the, 
uh, the, you know, seeing his own father beheaded by the Turks. So a lot of sorrow and tragedy came uh, along with that, my father being separated from his family uh, because of the war and um, you know, my mother, you know, I mean, going through the bombing of Berlin and so forth. So a lot of uh, a lot of harrowing experiences uh, that you know, that uh, they went through. But my dad was pastor of a Russian-Ukrainian church for for 18 years in Cleveland, which is where I was born. Uh, so grew up definitely with uh, the ethnic heritage of my mother, who had a Germanic background, and so a lot of the German traditions. And mm. we grew up speaking German at home. Uh, was also part of the part of the mix. So so I'm very grateful to have that uh, kind of the old country. Uh, yeah. As part of my background, uh, kind of fresh, uh, you know, first generation American experience. So I'm very grateful for that. So that, that's the thing is, um, so you've written, I got two books sitting uh, next to me. And many people are very familiar with these books, right? It's got a moral monster. And then did God recommend genocide? And a lot of people think these are just academic pursuits. I guess for some people they are. But you know, it changes a bit when you're looking at it with a background, with family suffering. I know it does, like in my context with Armenians, um, continuously kind of asking questions of God's goodness and these horrendous tragedies uh, that happen to either our families or people, uh, you know, our kind of ethnic group that we're a part of. Um, I'm sure that impacts you in your writing. I mean, I'm, I'm sure there's stories uh, that, that come into the mix as you think and write about these things. Yeah, it's it's true. I, um, you know, my, my parents went through a great uh, ordeal, and I grew up also with my uh, with a number of relatives who came over. My my grandmother was born in Lithuania, so a number of her well, her you know her sisters and brothers came over to the United States as well. And uh, you know, I had uh, you know two great aunts and a great uncle who survived the bombing of Dresden, Germany. Uh, also, my great aunts told about the outbreak of the Russian Revolution, and they were in Moscow when it broke out. Uh, so they were in the thick of these um, traumatic experiences, and the so so that's kind of interwoven with my own story. And and also, as I think through the Christian faith, I see that this offers us the best resources for grappling with suffering and evil. Uh, that when you look at alternative worldviews, uh, they they don't have those kinds of rich resources for making sense, for thinking through, for being nourished even in the face of evil uh, and sustained uh, spiritually uh, and uh, intellectually. Uh, so, so I write with that, and I uh, again, even as we deal with warfare in the Old Testament, and sometimes, you know, and I've got a forthcoming book called "Is God a Vindictive Bully," which deals with things like the imprecatory Psalms, you know, issues related to uh, how do I respond to evil that's happening uh, around me when I myself am uh, assaulted, uh, when when uh, there are people who oppress and dehumanize. How do I pray? Do we use those imprecatory Psalms? Even and a lot of Christians throughout the world do in those harrowing circumstances, uh, and uh, and so I, I argue for preserving those imprecatory psalms with some qualification. But uh, we see them even uh, brought into the New Testament that those are quoted in the New Testament a number of times uh, that they haven't been dismissed or gotten rid of, uh, but they're actually incorporated into the New Testament canon. And I think these are also ways of helping us think through and. and, and in praying to a God who promises to bring justice, even the redeemed saints in Revelation 6, uh, 9 and 10, they call out for God, how long, O Lord? Mm. These are redeemed, they're in heaven, uh, and they are crying out for God to avenge their blood. So this is the, the justice of God, the severity of God is part of the gospel. As Paul says in, in Romans eleven twenty two. behold the kindness and severity of God. And we see that Jesus himself is severe, uh, that uh, that there are uh, that he is one who, you know, we, we read about the wrath of the lamb in the book of Revelation. And so that severity is also part of the gospel. And so we don't want to lose sight of that. We don't want to overemphasize the, the kindness of God and lose sight of the severity of God. And that applies to Jesus as well. Wow. Wow. When uh, do you have a time uh, frame as to when we can? Well, it's uh, it's just early August 2021 right now and so i'm just submitting the completed manuscript uh in less than two weeks 
So that'll be probably, I'd say another maybe nine months. So 2022. Okay. Well, if you're watching this and it's already out, get it and read it. Uh, I mean, it'll, it'll, it's, it's a nice kind of trilogy of, of books that are around the same subject. Uh, that's not our subject today. I know you get a lot of interviews and as we were talking, we're like, okay, what do we, what do we do? Um, relativism. It seems to me that a lot of Christians aren't talking about relativism now. When I was in Bible college, and this is so 2005 to 2010 is when I was in, uh, in Bible college, I read a book, it's a really small book, um, that you had written called True for You But Not for Me. Okay. Um, uh, now, the title's kind of been modified, but deflating the slogans that leave Christians speechless. And that was such an encouraging book because it was short. Uh, the chapters weren't like that long. Um, and uh, they're really quick stuff that I would regularly come across in conversation with people. I was doing a lot of street ministry and, and ministry on campuses where these, these statements will be thrown out. And I, it equipped me well enough to be able to respond to those things properly. Um, and now relativism gets a bit more complicated. So... If you would define relativism and then comment on the difference between, I guess, epistemological relativism and then like moral relativism, uh, because there is a distinction there. Uh, and then sure. we'll move from there. Yeah. Well, what we mean by relativism uh, is that uh, truth or morality is relative to a an individual, although that could be subjectivism, called subjectivism technically, uh, or to a, a culture or a period of time where you went in Rome, do as the Romans. Uh, and, uh, and so what is uh, true or right for one person or culture may not be true or right for another. Uh, that is, truth is relative to one's uh, individual beliefs, one's own culture, uh, one's own period of time in history, uh, rather than being objective, which is the opposite of relative, uh, which you know, we, could, we could say is that uh, truth or morality, uh, these are objective in that they are uh, true or right, independent of what I may think about them or whether I even know them. Uh, whether I uh, am sincere or not, uh, these are these are issues independent uh, of that. So it's it's a, a mind or person independent reality. So when it comes to truth, for example, the claim that the uh, the world is round is true, even if no one believes that the world is round. If everybody believes the believes the Earth is flat. Uh, they would be in error. Why? Because their statement does not match up with the way things really are. Truth is a matchup with reality. Uh, and so that is what uh, we are talking about here. And the same thing with the moral realm when it comes to, you know, that. so that's the epistemological or the aspect of knowledge uh, dealing with truth and true beliefs. Uh, you know, truth is a, a true statement or a true story, uh, etc. These are true because they conform or match up to the way things really are. Uh, so reality is the truth maker. Reality makes something true. Uh, and the same thing with the moral realm. There's a moral realm that exists. And so morality uh, is not something that's merely a, an invention. It's not some sort of a, uh, you know, a construction, uh, but rather there is a moral realm. And so morality, even if people have not been living in keeping with that morality, if there are moral reforms, it's reflecting the the reality of a moral realm. So morality is not invented, it is discovered. And that's a an important distinction. We don't make morality, we don't construct or fabricate morality. There is a moral realm uh, to which our minds and hearts ought to correspond and match up with that moral realm. Okay. Um is relativism still uh, something we should be concerned about if, if that's the way we can uh, use, uh, you know, speak about it? Yeah, I'd say the, in terms of the, 
it's all relative sorts of slogan you know, type slogans. Uh, we perhaps don't hear as much of that anymore, but we do see relativism reflected in a lot of our, say, critical race theory, uh, in a lot of our identity politics, uh, where truth is no longer a matter of beliefs corresponding to reality, but whoever happens to be you know, in power, whoever, who whoever can exert the, the, the muscle uh, over another person, then that is really what matters. So, so truth is a matter of dominance. Truth is a matter of maybe victimization. Uh, it's interesting that even in, you know, as you read in the Old Testament, uh, there are laws that require both the rich and the poor to be judged by the same standard, that you're not to show favoritism or to, to give favor to the poor just because they're poor. There is to be a consistent standard. So, uh, so just because you're poor doesn't mean that you're off the hook when it comes to criminal activity. Hmm. Uh, neither can you get off the hook because you're rich. And so there's to be that consistent standard. Uh, and I think we've, we're losing sight of that kind of a consistent standard. So it doesn't matter if you're a, you know, you know, if you're a victim, if you have a certain, if you're, if you're, a, you have a certain color skin, uh, you know, then that automatically puts you at a disadvantage, uh, rather than, as Martin Luther King Jr. said, uh, treating all people uh, not by virtue of the color of their skin, but the content of their character. Uh, and I think that that's true for us within the body of Christ, that there is no Jew or Greek, male or female, slave or free. Uh, there, there's uh, this unity in Christ that uh, we're not to treat people according to, uh, you know, kind of favoring one over against another uh, that uh, defies what we're called to in the body of Christ. So, so those are some things that are important to keep in mind. So like I said, even if there isn't the label relativism written all over everything, we do see manifestations of relativism uh, throughout our, our own culture. Uh, could it be that in the last uh, 30 to 40 years, maybe 50 years, uh, we have assumed, we went from kind of relativism being a challenge, and then culture has generally just assumed it to be true, and it's become interwoven into the fabric of our thinking and uh, as a culture, what we are and who we are? Yes, I think that's probably uh, an accurate uh, statement, uh, and that as we, uh, you know, that there's no longer a need to uh, defend relativism. Some people have tried to do that, uh, and and I think people have simply defaulted to, you know, as a kind of the received view or the default view uh, as, you know, identity politics, sexual politics, uh, you know, th these sorts of things are, you know, you can't argue against them. Uh, you can't off issue challenges. It's just a, you know, a fixed position. And to argue against these identity politics or, uh, or you know, political views uh, is to re sometimes receive the disdain of, oh, it's like you hold to a flat earth view. Uh, or you're, it, it presumes you're unenlightened if you don't accept the, uh, this new standard. Uh, and that's the way it was with relativism earlier, that if you challenge relativism, if you didn't believe that everything was relative, which is itself an absolute statement, uh, then you were seen as, uh, as somehow out of touch with reality, that you were somehow arrogant and bigoted and imperialistic and so forth. So it, it does have that same vibe. Yeah, you said something that's very interesting uh, about arrogance. Um, when it comes to making truth claims, usually that is a connotation, especially when it comes to religious truth claims. Like if I say Christianity is true, well, by definition, that would make everything else false, every other religious claim, because they're contradictory. They're fundamentally contradictory with one another. Yeah, or at least where they would contradict at a specific point, sure. um, then they, they would at that point be an error. So not a total black and white, but you know, there's you know, when truth claims are being made, because there could be a lot of overlap and agreement on certain uh, truth claims as well. So does that matter? Is, is it in uh, the arrogance charge, I guess? Uh, does it really matter in this con conversation about truth? Well, it can affect your presentation. 
that if you approach something you can say is is true and factually matching up with reality but you can express it in such a way that is arrogant and gives a, a sense perhaps there's a certain smugness or an air of superiority that comes along with it which of course is deeply problematic uh, when the Christian makes the claim that Jesus is the only way, uh, this should not be, uh, you know, we should not approach, we should not come across uh, in any other way except a humble way. Uh, the Christian faith is uh, a matter of grace rather than our own achievement. It's not because we're smarter, better, etc., than other people. Uh, it's simply because Jesus has stepped into this world and I receive the gift that is offered uh, without any sense of superiority. It's a matter of there, but the, for the grace of God go I. And so it's not a matter of yeah. uh, boasting about achievement. Their boasting is excluded, Paul says in Romans 4. Uh, and so, so, so I think that how you present the gospel is important. It doesn't change the truth of the gospel, uh, even if you come across as superior, judgmental, arrogant, and so on. Uh, but I think the truth of the gospel should affect our own demeanor, our own disposition, that we should walk humbly before God and before others. Yeah, I suppose this is what Peter's talking about when he says, do this in gentleness and respect. Exactly. Um, but nonetheless, people will accuse Christians of, of being arrogant. Um, and I guess there's a way to we, we can navigate that. In your experience, what are what have been some kind of practical ways you've been able to navigate that? I think it's helpful to remember that people are not relativists because they have thought things through and have arrived at what they take to be an intellectually superior position. Uh, it's not as though they've logically thought these things through because the laws of logic themselves are fixed and unwavering. And people will use the laws of logic to argue in defense of relativism. So they believe that there are certain uh, inescapable realities or truths that uh, they cannot deny without themselves contradicting, without contradicting themselves. So, uh, so I, I do keep in mind that people are not relativists because of intellectual reasons primarily, but uh, perhaps I think authority reasons. Uh, they may have had negative experiences with authority, and so they don't want, they don't trust authority. And I think that's why it's important for us to remember that we need to help people through our lives, through our conversation, move from a place of distrust to trust that we are not, uh, you know, I should say we, you know, someone has said we need to be like the fifth gospel to people. Uh, before they pick up the, the canonical gospels, the four gospels and read them, uh, they'll want to see the gospel in our lives. Uh, that, as Paul said it, to the Corinthians, he says, you are our epistle, you are our letter, written in our hearts, known and read by all people. And so it should be that way with those who are perhaps suspicious of truth claims, suspicious of authority, uh, that we, through relationship, through personal connection, uh, reveal that there is a trustworthy, faithful person who is communicating this message and that perhaps there is a faithful God who can also be trusted. Uh, and so this can be, our lives can present a bridge to people who are skeptical or suspicious of any kind of truth claim. Uh, I also think it's helpful to, uh, to, to remind people that, or I think just to ask people, why they are relativists, why they take the relativistic position and, and, and find out what their pilgrimage has been like, what has their intellectual journey been like. And a lot of times when you ask them that, it reveals that their conclusions about relativism don't come so much from an intellectual grounding, but more along the lines of something personal, something uh, that has you know, some damage that has come to them that they don't trust uh, authority, they don't trust people. And, and you can understand uh, why for, for many reasons, but also reminding people that to take the position of relativism 
is to take an authoritative stance. We can't escape an authoritative stance. Wherever we take a view, we will do so because we believe that other positions are inaccurate or in error and that we are taking a stance that we believe to be intellectually superior, maybe morally superior to others. And, and then it's, it's right to ask, what, what is your justification for that stance? Most people, when, when they are asked, they don't say, well, this is just my position. This is just my preference. And I recognize that people hold different views and I just can't speak against them. I can't say anything about them. This is just my own, like, like a personal opinion. And I can't, I'm not going to criticize anyone. It's, they're trying to be as consistent as possible. But, uh, but, it's all, but there is often behind that a belief that this is a superior position. And most often when you ask people, they, will get very, they can get very upset or angry when you start to ask them about why they hold the views that they do. If you challenge them, it, it, and, and they disagree and argue with you, it's because they are not true relativists, because they take their position to be true, and that because you disagree with them, you would at that point be in error. So it's helpful to remember that no one can avoid taking a stance on these issues. And, and also keep in mind that people who say that there is no such thing as truth are actually affirming that it's true, that there is no truth. Uh, people who say that you cannot know uh, are actually saying that I know that you can't know. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so uh, taking a stance is going to be ultimately inescapable. We will hold to certain truths, beliefs, beliefs uh, even if tentatively, we'll take them to be the preferred position intellectually. And so it's important to say, well, what is the justification for that position? I'd like to hear more about that. Okay. Um, what is the best argument uh, that you've come across for relativism? Or the, I guess the most challenging one? Uh, I, I mean, I suppose there are a couple uh, that people would put forward. And, and one is the argument from disagreement that people disagree on a wide array of issues. And how can we be sure? perhaps, kind of a skeptical uh, angle thrown in there. Uh, can we, how can we be confident uh, that we are not in error uh, because there are maybe so many different views or so many people disagree, et cetera? Uh, so just taking that on its, on its face, uh, I think you know, it, it, there is a, an objective conclusion that is being reached, namely that there are many people who disagree about a lot of things. And secondly, the fact that there is genuine disagreement rather than just maybe I'm misperceiving something or maybe we're honing in on the truth and we don't actually you know, uh, have a, an, ide- an, ident- an exact landing on something that is true, but we're maybe approximating it somewhat. The fact that we are maybe getting close to something as opposed to being you know, saying the opposite is also an indication that there is something uh, that we could say about the truth, that, uh, that it is something that's closer to the truth than another viewpoint. Thirdly, the, the fact that people get a lot of things wrong, uh, that there are people who are may, maybe making errors in their judgment, the very fact that we can detect errors is an indication that we recognize the truth, at least sometimes. Uh, so to be able to detect error assumes that you know that someone has deviated from the truth in order to make that kind of a statement. So those are a few things that I'd say about that one area of disagreement. Another one would be uh, the issue of, uh, of historical development, especially the, what this is, comes up when, it, when we're dealing with morality, uh, right and wrong. Uh, people say, look, people used to hold these views as right, and uh, they held them very strongly. They're passionate about them. You know, maybe they'll talk about slavery, maybe they'll talk about um, racism, they'll talk about all sorts of uh, moral errors or what they take to be errors in our modern day. But a couple of things here. One is that even for people who believe that slavery was uh, right, 
uh, say in the uh, in the colonial era. It wasn't everyone who agreed with that. The slaves didn't think it was right. <laughs> they disagreed wholeheartedly. Mm. And there were abolitionists who also disagreed with that position. Uh, secondly, uh, a lot of people say, now I prefer the way that we live today, uh, you know, recognizing slavery, racism, and so forth to be wrong. Uh, well, maybe this could actually be an indicator that those things those preferences may actually reflect a moral reality. Maybe it's more than just a matter of preference. Maybe we've actually landed on something that matches up with a moral order, a moral realm to which our minds and our history are finally matching up. Now, historical development itself isn't an argument uh, that strongly supports relativism. It only tells us that people have believed wrongly in the past and that they have discovered certain moral truths. And so they recognize that morality is not simply an invention, but it's discovered that there are, uh, that, that there are some beliefs that better correspond to the moral realm than others do. And then thirdly, uh, you know, when it comes to the existence of God, and I believe very strongly that uh, there is a, a God-morality connection, that human beings have dignity and worth because we've been made in the image of God, and that, we, that there are moral duties that, uh, that come with being human that are, uh, you know, that, that, that are just part of the package of being morally responsible agents. And so even if there is moral development over time, in terms of our own civilization and so on, this can actually dovetail with the reality that there is a God who is at the root of this moral realm, who anchors our human dignity and moral responsibility and issues duties to us, such that we can say that that historical development doesn't at all undermine objective reality, but actually can, can be nicely incorporated into the understanding of a moral realm that is broader than just mere historical development. And we just happen to be at this particular period of time morally, and who knows how things will develop beyond this point. Uh, no, we can, we can actually think clearly about these moral developments and say, no, this is where history got it wrong. <laughs> this is where our forebears got it wrong. And, uh, and this is where we're getting better at understanding our own moral obligations, our own recognition of the intrinsic dignity of others and so forth. So one of my favorite arguments against moral relativism is uh, called the reformer's dilemma. Mm -hmm. So I want to ask you uh, about that, kind of define it, clarify it, and um, how, why that's, uh, I, well, I'm assuming you think it's a strong argument. So sure. uh, I th uh, why, why you think it's a strong argument? Yeah. Well, the very reality of the moral realm is what has inspired moral reforms in the past. Uh, again, abolishing apartheid, slavery, uh, and you know, racism, etc. Well, if those, you know, if morality is relative, then those are not any significant achievement. That's just how history developed. And we still can't say that, uh, that, you know, that, you know, that, that achievement of uh, the civil rights legislation in 1964, that that is some sort of a, uh, a grand achievement for human civilization. No, it's just relative. It's just how we've developed and we could regress. We could go back to racism and, and so forth. And it would be no different. There would be nothing uh, problematic, morally speaking, because there is no moral standard that's being violated. If the relativist is correct, these uh, are not any moral achievement. And there's no point in trying to bring about moral reform, because if everything is just a matter of my own group's identity or that, uh, you know, everything is relative, then these are just, uh, you know, utterly trivial uh, achievements that don't amount to anything for the sake of humanity. Uh, we may prefer something over another, uh, some state over another, but ultimately uh, these, these, uh, these, uh, these aren't any significant achievements because there is no moral realm to which we ought to, toward which we ought to strive and, and, and conform our lives. Yeah. So there, I guess two, two issues come up there. One of them is that we, sh we, we shouldn't or we ought not celebrate these individuals or, uh, who've made reforms uh, because they were going against the tide of their social groups uh, 
uh, and everything that goes with that. Uh, as a matter of fact, added onto that, the second point would be that w they're kind of like social deviants, correct? Mm -hmm. Because they are going against uh, their their group, and maybe which it's considering if it's the whatever the popular opinion is should be accepted. We should actually look down on these people for trying to reform their culture. We should say, well, you know, they're not necessarily doing uh, the right thing by going against the majority position. Right. Yeah. Why stick your neck out when you're only causing trouble for yourself? Uh, and of course, there there is no moral realm, objective moral realm anyway. So, yeah, it, it does lead to all sorts of problems. And uh, why admire the courage of people who uh, did stick their necks out? Uh, they're just fools. Uh, why create all that trouble for yourself? Uh, why not just go along with the cultural tide? And so, yeah, I mean, one, one um, postmodern thinker, uh, Richard Rorty, said that truth is what your peers let you get away with saying. So just as long as nobody's challenging you, rocking the boat, uh, then yeah, just just call it true. Wow, uh, that <laughs> brings about all sorts of issues. Um, so you mentioned uh, kind of modern stuff we're dealing with, right? Critical race theory you mentioned, and then you, the, the issues when it comes to sexuality. There was a period of time, and uh, I mean, these conversations started before uh, I, well, maybe when I was born, and maybe as uh, you know, I've, I definitely after I became a Christian, when when I was doing ministry on campuses, a lot of college students were arguing for, say, homosexuality, uh, being you know, people are born this way, right? They they can't help it. We've seen a development of that kind of ideology. Uh, into the into what would be more in a relativistic sense as to it really depends on how the individual feels. And even in recent times, I've been seeing individuals arguing for things like, well, that could change on a day to day basis. So it's not necessarily like, well, this is what I think I am, but I could wake up today and think that this is who I'm attracted to. Tomorrow, I might not be attracted to anyone. And the following day, it'll be a complete uh, different thing. I don't know how much you've dealt with this. And if you have, you can comment on that. Sure. Uh, I did do a PragerU video uh, on relativism, true for you, but not for me. Uh, so you can look that up and I deal with some of these modern day challenges of people who identify themselves as, you know, they identify themselves according to the way that they feel. So a Dutchman, wanted to have his birth certificate changed. A you know, six-year-old man wanted to have it changed to, uh, you know, to uh, reflecting that he's 40 years old because that's how he feels. Uh, and, or, or, you know, some, uh, some people have gone on campuses, like one, uh, one young man went to the University of Washington and started asking people questions about, you know, what if I said, you know, here is a white Caucasian male certain height. What if I said that I'm, you know, six foot, you know, six foot seven? Uh, what if I said that I'm Chinese? What if I said I'm a female? What if I said I'm six years old? You know, and a lot of the university students were saying, well, you know, they're a little hesitant, but well, if, if you feel that way, then okay. And they didn't say anything like, you're obviously not six years old. Uh, you're obviously not, at least from the appearance, you might have, uh, you know, less genetic uh, input, you know, from the Chinese side, uh, but I can't detect anything. Uh, you know, and they didn't say anything like that. It was just, well, if that's how you feel, who am I to say that that's wrong? And again, that is the kind of timidity uh, that, uh, that we're seeing on a lot of university campuses, not challenging anything according to what one feels. Uh, in fact, even the whole thing about being born that way, like you said, it doesn't matter how you're born anymore. It just happens to be how you're feeling at this current moment. That's what you go with. That's how you identify yourself. And so it leads to, you know, again, it just adds to the whole 
moral uh, and epistemological or truth confusion uh, in our own day. Uh, things that we have taken as obvious and straightforward, uh, this is no longer uh, being allowed. Uh, there are, you know, people are simply going with identification according to feeling, and that's all that matters. I mean, there is no feminism anymore. Uh, I mean, what's what's distinctive about being a woman anymore? You can just feel like a, a, a man, and that's sufficient to get you into athletic competitions uh, as, and, and competing in women's sports or something like that, So, uh, or vice versa. So all of these things are, you know, uh, there's a lot of general confusion, and I think that is just the kind of condition in which we find ourselves, moral and epistemological confusion. And we I think need to, you know, we need to rescue uh, and, and speak uh, lives, live lives of, of truth and, and faithfulness and, um, and to stand against these changing tides that are all you know, increasingly self-contradictory and leave people in a state uh, that is worse than the first. Okay, uh, two questions. Has there ever been a society, to your knowledge, that's been, I wouldn't necessarily say truly relativistic, but has actually tried to somehow live this out, or is there a society? And on the second part of that question would be, does relativism, the kind of practical use of it, naturally just lead us into absurdity kind of the, the the sort of stuff you were just mentioning the of course you read about the the, the book of in the book of judges that uh, everyone did what was right in his own eyes and that's certainly going on in ancient israel uh you have other places a friend of mine who has worked in christian apologetics in india he said Indian society has been postmodern and relativistic for centuries. Uh, this is pretty much how we operate in India. And uh, it's, uh, there's no fixed truth. It's highly one pragmatic, what you can get away with, what your preferences are, et cetera. Um, and he, and so, uh, so that, that's one thing. Uh, you know, there were, you know, but I would say that, the idea that truth as relative or morality as relative, that this is somehow consistently practiced, I'd say, no, it has to be a selective relativism. Uh, people, and I'd say the two areas where people are selective relativists happens to be when it comes to God or morality. People aren't relativists when it comes to whether or not Paris is the capital of France. Uh, they are not relativists when it comes to the active ingredients in a, uh, you know, in a pharmacist prescription mm. bottle. Uh, they're not relativists when it comes to who won the World Cup. They're not relativists when it comes to a whole host of issues. They're not relativists in traffic. They believe that the signs are saying one thing and you know, if you're going to act like a relativist, you're not going to be around for very long. Uh, you're going to have to, you're going to keep bumping up against reality. Uh, reality is the corrective to, uh, to relativism. Uh, people cannot live consistency, consistently as relativists. They have to pick and choose what they want to be relativistic about. I like to tell the story of uh, J.P. Moreland, Christian philosopher, who, when he was at the University of, University of Vermont, was talking to a student who told him, whatever is true for you is true for you, and whatever is true for me is true for me, and we shouldn't go around forcing our views on other people. And so J.P. Moreland went to this student's room started to, and this is in the day of stereo systems, started to unplug his stereo system and walked out of the room with it. And the student said, hey, you can't do that. And J.P. Moreland said, what? You're not going to force your view on me that it's wrong to seal your stereo, are you? And uh, he said, when it comes to sexual morality or cheating on exams, you say, oh, everything's relative. But when somebody denies, you know, when somebody steals your property or denies your rights, you say, you can't do that. That's wrong. That's not fair. Uh, so again, it's you know people who are relativists. They don't they don't want someone smashing their jaguar with a sledgehammer. 
they don't want you to uh, to uh, you know to to cheat them out of uh, you know out of out of uh, you know well their hard earned money or something like that. Uh, there is a selectivity that we need to also be talking about uh, that people cannot live consistent lives as relativists. And again, I think it creates all sorts of inner turmoil as well. If I'm going to live as a relativist, I'm going to be living a shell of a life. Uh, in fact, you know, I, I'd like to tell the story of someone I met who said that he used to live like a relativist and his girlfriend said, I can't trust someone who is living a relativistic life. I can't befriend someone who can't be trusted, who doesn't have any moral standards, who can't be trusted uh, when he makes a promise. And she ended up breaking up with him, which ended up being a, a, a very important turn in this man's life because he, he really liked this girl. And he uh, it, it sent him on his own quest, and it, which led him to Christ, uh, the way, the truth, and the life. Uh, and he, he actually I was speaking live to him and he was in, the, his wife was actually there. And he said, you see that woman sitting there, that's my wife. And she was actually the one who told me that she didn't want to date a relativist. And that got me straightened out with God, straightened out with myself. And she saw the change that God had brought about in my life. And she, uh, they ended up getting married and uh, are now serving Christ together. Wow. Wow. Uh, there goes the practical aspects of life. Here's a question that just came in. Um, mm -hmm. And it, so the, I guess the questioner wants your comments on this says, allowing society to base facts on how we feel is a result of too much feminism, a lack of balance with the masculine. Correct me if I'm wrong, please, or please expound. Thank you. Well, I, I don't know that. Uh, I mean, I think feminism properly understood should be trying to get women, if they've been oppressed and uh, held as second-class citizen, citizens, that they should be brought the same proper level of equality as males. It's, it should not be an assertion of superiority, uh, but rather of a fundamental equality. And so if feminism in certain societies is properly done, where they need to be brought to the same level in terms of equality and acceptance and so forth as males, uh, that, is, that is a proper thing. Uh, I think that women can, you know, I think sometimes overstep their bounds uh, and, uh, you know, saying that, uh, you know, a, a, a woman, you know, uh, Gloria Steinem, a, a woman needs a man like a, a fish needs a bicycle, uh, you know, those sorts of statements, which are, again, rather uh, demeaning and uh, I think deny a fundamental partnership and complementarity that is there just even from a biological point of view. Uh, you know, women need uh, men you know, if they want to have children, uh, you know, and, and there has been a and there can be a harmony, a, you know, a, a, a deep and sweet compatibility and, uh, and, a, and a strong working relationship between male and female in society. Uh, so I'd say there are wrong attitudes behind, uh, I think, a misguided feminism, of course. Uh, but I think a, when there is proper equality, uh, then feminism has done its job. Uh, if, if we're if we're doing if women are doing what what is right, so I, I do think that there can be a diminishing of male influence, and I, perhaps that's what you're getting at. There could be a uh, an attempt to put down masculinity, somehow assuming that it's equi equivalent to uh, to violence, aggression, and so forth. Uh, you know, I think that uh, this is a, a misguided understanding. Uh, doesn't mean that there isn't a need for, say, someone to be uh, an aggressive protector when uh, those who are vulnerable uh, are being harmed. Uh, you know, that is necessary in society. And so protection and so forth is going to be important. And a lot of times guys are just stronger than women. I know there's some girls I wouldn't want to get to, uh, close to if I were in a fight with them. Uh, but I understand that. But but generally speaking, uh, men ought to uh, to step in and take that protective role. If I see a woman who's being, you know, about to be attacked in a dark alley, I want to step in. I want to I want to help out uh, a woman who otherwise would be powerless to do so. And I think that's just a recognition of certain. 
uh, facts about uh, about the male and female anatomy, and also just um, you know, there's a place for protection, a, pra- a place for stopping, as it were, aggression by exerting my my muscle, as it were, to uh, to help those who cannot help themselves in the face of attack. So again, all of those things in their proper place. But I appreciate the question. Yeah, I, I suppose that's the thing about any one of these worldviews, right? Like feminism, is a uh, is a, a it's an idea where you can't be a relativist and be a feminist because mm-hmm. you believe something is wrong and you're trying to remedy it. You're trying to fix it. Um, so every single time we come across uh, anybody making statements and, and kind of making that uh, statement or that belief system central, say veganism or something like that, you know, um, then you can't be a relativist. It's, it's literally just impossible to be a relativist when you may when you say this is central to my existence. Um, okay. Even if it's like religious tolerance and acceptance to the point of not we should get along and have healthy dialogue with one another, but something like, um, you know, all religions are true. It just immediately collapses on itself. Um, and therefore, the Christian could come in there and say, wait, maybe there is a way we can we can remedy this. And I think Christian theology really helps us in understanding all humans are made in the image of God. God even allows us to be wrong um, and act that out. Uh, he gives us that kind of freedom and even respects that. Where do other worldviews, do other religions actually bring that into the picture, this aspect of human dignity and value, even when we're wrong. Right. Yes, it's important to distinguish between person and belief. We can show regard for another person, even if we disagree. But what happens with the relativist is the relativist collapses person and belief such that if you reject my belief, you must be rejecting me. Uh, And so that is intolerable. Uh, And so that is just a misunderstanding. And I think we used to be better, much better at this, to be able to agree to disagree, uh, that we could actually have a debate with someone, have a disagreement with someone, uh, go out for a drink afterwards and maintain a good friendship. Uh, But in our climate today, uh, and I think we see this in, uh, you know, in in progressive circles in particular, where if you disagree with someone, you're not just someone who is in error. You are evil. You are an enemy. You ought to be eradicated. Mm-hmm. And that's a scary place to be. Uh, and so I think we need to restore more of the uh, civil discourse that uh, better characterized our society in the past, where we uh, don't... Uh, vilify or punish those with whom we disagree uh, and you know that we can show respect and regard for them and the Christian faith gives us as you said the basis for doing this naturalism atheism where does value come from where does human dignity come from in a world of selfish genes and electrons and blind physical deterministic forces uh, there is no grounding for human value uh, there is no grounding even for uh, for moral responsibility or free will. Uh, you know that that the Christian faith is better equipped to give us the resources to uh, engage within society in a in a in principle debate uh, and uh, and disagreement uh, while still affirming the value and dignity of the other person. So uh, finally, as we come to the close, can you comment on tolerance and um, what it should mean? Uh-huh what people mean by it uh, today and how we should kind of navigate and speak about that. Yeah, tolerance used to be, in its classical definition, it had something negative built into it. Uh, You tolerated something you didn't like, you didn't enjoy, you tolerated something you had to put up with. You know, you tolerate someone who's snoring on the plane without having, you know, without maybe gagging him or something like that. You tolerate people's body odor if you're sitting on a bus and, you know, you don't, you know, remove them from the bus or something like that. Uh, you, you know, So tolerance used to be putting up with what you take to be disagreeable or false. But in our day, it has come to mean accepting all views as true, celebrating all views, 
the problem is you can't accept, say, the Buddhist view that God does not exist and the Christian view that God does exist. You can't say, I accept your view. Well, what does that even mean? I think what you probably mean is something like the classical view that I may not agree with you, but I accept you or respect you as a person. But like I said, there's relativists often collapse person and belief. And so that if there is disagreement, then you are rejecting the person with whom you're disagreeing. And, uh, and so again, it's just a fundamental error in, uh, in, in, in distinction. Uh, right, you know, so, so that's something that we uh, are, are often uh, poorly navigating. Uh, tolerance means putting up with what you take to be disagreeable or false. Uh, and, uh, you know, and unfortunately, with the relativist who takes tolerance to be the highest virtue, and again, he believes that you should never be intolerant so that you've got a moral standard there. Uh, but um, but the, the relativist uh, cannot possibly accept all views as true. But what ends up happening is that you basically go along with everybody else's view until your own view is challenged. That's when the relativist can get angry. That's when the relativist can get upset and, uh, and no longer treats his own viewpoint as relative to himself, but actually sees his view as absolute. And if you disagree with that, then you are in error, which of course undermines relativism. It's interesting. The thing that comes to my mind is that this view of tolerance will naturally lead to violence of some sort. Uh, like you said earlier, that it becomes kind of an issue about force. Whoever's in power gets to demand and dictate how other people function, which is, again, generally when I talk to people who want to be tolerant, they're very kind people. They're, they're not violent people. They don't, they don't want to mm -hmm. go out there and, you know, and hurt folks for their views. But mm -hmm. it seems to me that's kind of the natural, logical conclusion. Yeah, uh, the, uh, and, and I think that that's really what we are left with if we allow the relativist to have this self-contradictory view of tolerance to have its way, uh, that ultimately, uh, if I disagree with you, if you don't agree with my relativism, then, uh, then it, it now becomes a matter of power, whoever uh, you know, I'm not going to let you get away with your view of tolerance. You have to accept my view of tolerance, which means that any viewpoint that disagrees with relativism has to be punished, has to be dealt with. And so that is, a, a, again, a very frightening uh, sort of scenario where power now becomes the issue because truth, principle, dialogue, debate, and so forth are totally removed from the picture. And so now what you're left with is coercion. Um, any final words and thoughts for uh, folks that are watching this might be watching in the future as we, you know, navigate as Christians through uh, this modern world? Well, don't be a relativist. Uh, it's um, intellectually and morally and personally problematic um, that uh, that also we find in the gospel message the affirmation of human dignity and worth and a proper place for tolerance and uh, principled uh, disagreement. And we also have, you know, if the, if everything is relative, if, you know, if there are no moral standards, then there can be no such thing as repentance, which means that there can be no such thing as reconciliation to God which is our fundamental problem, that we are alienated from God. And it is only when we recognize our own sin, our own falling short of the glory of God, that we can therefore turn away from idols, these God substitutes, uh, to the living and true God. So relativism will prevent us from actually finding salvation. Relativism prohibits <laughs> the possibility of redemption, because it means we turn from our sins and recognize that we have fallen short of God's standard, and that we need to be reconciled to a God who is, uh, you know, who judges sin. Uh, so we open up a pathway to actually finding our true selves when we recognize that relativism must be shed, and that there is a moral standard from which we've fallen short or deviated 
And but there is a God who steps into that moral gap between the ideal and our own failed moral performance and through grace uh, brings us into a relationship with himself and actually uh, imputes to us a righteous standing that God declares us righteous, not on the basis of our own performance, but based on what Jesus Christ has done on our behalf. Amen. Thank you. Well, we are we have hit an hour exactly. I want to thank you. Dr. Copan, for taking the time, sitting down and chatting with us. Uh, hopefully, for those who watch or are watching the replay, God bless you. Um, and uh, this hopefully has been very encouraging to you. In the description box, uh, there will be links to the works uh, that Dr. Copan has worked on. And definitely, I'm going to put up that the link to the video that you did for uh, PragerU uh, so people can watch that and um, kind of deal with it in the modern context. Thank you guys for watching. God bless you, and we will see you next time. Thank you.